Today's scripture is in Nehemiah. We're returning to our Nehemiah series, and it's Nehemiah 10, 30 through 39. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our Lord, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into our house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord of our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. If you're new here, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today's really, really comfortable subject matter. It's about money. So awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, for you to speak to us, each one of us individually. Thank you for these people, and I pray your blessing upon your children here in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back to our Nehemiah series. Took a few weeks off from this book, so just a short recap just to kind of get us up to speed for today's message, and we'll go from chapter 8 instead of back to chapter 1. What we essentially have from chapter 8 until this point is Israel recommitting themselves to God. Have any of you ever done that? You know, recommit yourself to God? I recall when I, a child, and then through my pre-adolescence, and then my teenage years and young adults, and all these years, you know, when you, you go away to a retreat or to like a conference or something or a concert, and you, you know, they ask for that recommitment or that whatever, and then you're like, oh, me, me, and you, you kind of go there, or is that just me and Rich, that's it, like, it's just you and me, man, it's just you and me. Okay, so this is what happened to the people of Israel. You look back to chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll find what this recommitment centered on, which is this. It was on the word of God. And it reads this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Following this verse, we find out how transformative the scriptures were to these people. And it so impacted them that it brought them some 
significant changes in their lives, so much so that in chapter 9, verse 38, they made this covenant with God, a covenant that they wrote and they sealed and they delivered the documents with their names inside of them. So this signed, sealed, legal document to record their covenant to God. Here's this verse. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. When was the last time the Bible touched you in such a deep, profound way? That it impacted you in such a deep way that what the Bible teaches changes the way that you live your life? Because not any one of us in here is perfect. And for those of you who are married, you know your spouse is not perfect. And for any of you with children, you know your children are not perfect. Since we're all imperfect, when's the last time the Word of God so touched you that your imperfections were more in alignment to the ways of Jesus? See, we all have these spiritual mile markers in our life, points in our life where changes that we make during those times would impact our present. They would impact our future because the decisions that we make today affect the future. How serious are you about making changes in your life to positively impact your future and the future of those whom you love? The people of Israel back in Nehemiah's day were very serious. They entered into a curse, into an oath. This is chapter 10, verse 29. It says, into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So they're declaring to themselves, to each other, we are going to live according to the scriptures. All right, great. How are you going to do that? What does this look like practically? Well, three things, and this is a review from previous Nehemiah studies. So if you want to listen back into those studies, we listed three things before. Firstly, they looked at God's purposes over their own personal preferences. And secondly, they looked at their obligations to God over their personal rights. And then lastly, they looked at their life through the eyes of eternity rather than just instant gratification. And so their lives changed because their lives were lived for God. God's purposes, their responsibilities to God with their eyes, not just for today, but for eternity. No more a life of my preferences, my rights, and and instant gratification Yet this is a really, really challenging thing, isn't it? To live in such a way? How does this look practically? It started with the ones whom they loved most, their families. If this change is going to start anywhere, it needs to start at home. So you look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What they committed to had serious effects on their lives and their loved ones' lives. And we covered verses 30 through 35 somewhat about four weeks ago, so we'll briefly look at them again, and then we're going to finish out this chapter this morning. When we last looked at verses 30 through 35, we looked at how the Scriptures address our family, our time, and our money. And I mentioned several weeks ago that when we returned to this study that we'll be taking a closer look at money. So here we are, one of my absolute favorite subjects. 
I'm really not kidding. It really is. Because this is what I did before I actually came into ministry. I managed money. I worked for a very large money manager. And so this is a subject matter that I love talking about professionally and personally. But to be completely honest with you, it's not a matter that I enjoy preaching about from a pulpit. This is not something that I enjoy doing, talking about money from the pulpit. Because some of you may be thinking, oh, they're just wanting money, or they're just wanting this, or they're just wanting that from us. Like I told you at the beginning of the service, we're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, and we just happen to be here. So you, now you know why I took the last three weeks off, because I've been trying to put this off, waiting for the Lord's return. You know, it's just like, but he hasn't come back, and we're going to talk about this. So money is one of those gifts that God has given us, a gift that can benefit others greatly but also a gift that, when misused, can be detrimental. It's a gift that can provide great joy, but it can also lead to great sadness. So what some have done to address the money issue, they take these extremes, right? So we're going to take a vow of poverty. Or you go to the other extreme, and it's this prosperity gospel. And either extreme is unbiblical. See, money is not evil. It's a gift from God to be shared. The Bible has a lot to say about money. I encourage you to join Pastor Steve in his class that he's facilitating about finances. Great class. Now, prior to us moving forward with this study, let me just share one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-7. through 7. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I keep that in mind as we move forward into Nehemiah. What the people did with their resources proved where their priorities were. Your priorities are easily identifiable. Very easy. If you need help with that, I can help you with that. All I need from you is... Your credit card statements, bank statements, checkbook. That's about it. Receipts, maybe. I need some receipts. And through that, I can tell you what your priorities are. You can tell what your priorities are if you just laid those things out in front of you. Because in the exercise of using your financial resources, you have made choices. You have the choice to accept a product or service or to reject that product or service. And what we have here in Nehemiah are opportunities the Israelites had in the exercise of their finances. Verse 31, And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Now why did they do this? Because the scriptures were open to them once again. They got serious about it. So they probably recalled Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Take away the Christian hat, the Christian lenses for just a moment. Just remove them for a moment and think about this practice. Isn't this strange? Isn't this a weird practice? Put on a business hat. 
A business person would not conduct commerce when there are people to trade with? I mean, isn't that totally against free trade, capitalism? This is bizarre. Isn't this what business is about? You want to buy something? You want to sell? I'm here. Isn't that what business is about? But that's not what the command is about. This is not about money. This is about obedience to God. And that's what the people during Nehemiah's time practiced. Obedience. Let's continue on that verse here. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. Again, the word of God was revealed to them. They were looking back. Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Again, take off your Christian lenses and your Christian hat. Isn't this just a bizarre practice on how to handle money? This is weird. Because any business person knows that you can make more money by selling more of your commodity. So if you don't do that, you don't make money. What money do you make for leaving food out for the poor? For leaving food out for the beasts of the field? What money do you make leaving grapes in your vineyards and olives in your orchards? Nothing. Nothing. So a whole year? Are you kidding me? So what kind of crazy business practices are these? You don't learn these at Harvard Business School or Stanford or Warren. You don't learn this type of stuff. This makes no sense at all in the world of accounting and economics and business, entrepreneurship. This makes no sense. Forgo the crops of the seventh year? That is a lot of money. It's one-seventh of your money every seven years. It's a lot of money. Again, it's not all about money. It's about our obedience to God. And the people of Nehemiah's time, they followed through with all of the word of God that was revealed to them. Now, how many of us try to justify what we do, even though it goes against the instructions of God? We have all of these reasons to go against God's instructions, even though they're in the scriptures. And it's not about our reasons. It's not about the things that we make up. It's simply about obedience to God. But then we just kind of complicate things. We complicate that simple call of obedience with all the reasons we have not to obey when it's not about those reasons at all. It's not about the money. It's not about plug whatever reason you have to go against the obedience to God. It's not about that stuff. It's just simple obedience to God. To read the Bible, to gain knowledge, to understand it, to apply it, regardless of how odd, how strange, how bizarre those practices are, we do it out of obedience because this makes no sense at all. No financial sense, at least. Because here's something. You and I will always have opportunities. You and I will always have reasons all of them might even seem reasonable and they might even seem really good, but they're disobedient. And I need to confess to you, I, I don't have this stuff down. 
at all. I struggle, as I've shared with you guys in the past, with Sabbath rest. It's one of my greatest struggles. And I have a life team around me. I have people around me that help me, and I need them. I need them to check in with me on how I'm doing with that. And when there's an opportunity to make some money on the side for me, I usually do it. I usually take that opportunity. And I struggle to say no to take the break. I want to do that for my kids. I want to do that for me and my wife. I want to stash things in our retirement. I want to do all this kind of stuff for them. I I want to bless my family, those around me, those that I love financially. And so my wife is on my life team. And so she constantly reminds me that my time is more important to her and my daughters than the money that I can make. And it's just this constant reminder that I need because I struggle with this because there is always an opportunity. But what are our responsibilities? What are our obligations? And the people of Nehemiah's day took these responsibilities, these obligations, they took them to heart, verses 32 and 33. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Are you getting the picture of how sacrificial their giving has been so far? Take every seventh year off. Take every seventh day off. Give a third of a shekel on top of all those things. I mean, what do you have left? For the showbread, this is why. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Now the house of our God is in reference to the temple and their giving was really sacrificial. I mean, if you kind of tally all the numbers in your head that we've been talking about already, if all these things that they're making, every seventh day is off. Every seventh year is off. They're giving a third of a shekel. This is extremely sacrificial giving. It cost them something to give what they gave. It wasn't just a gift of surplus. It wasn't just a gift of leftovers or convenience or ease. This was extremely costly. It helped them see who they were before God. This is one of the gifts of giving. That you see who you are before God, where your heart is before God, and you can't find that out when you just give leftovers. You can't. You know when someone loves you when they sacrifice for you. When you're going out on a date or something, you know, you make that first good impression. You want to take your date to a nice place. And you pay for that. And maybe you pay for a valet and you you pay for whatever it is and it's nice. That first date, college students get a pass. You don't bring your leftovers to the date and you open it up. Hey, you, you want to come? Let's, let's, I guess, I have chicken leftover from last night. It's really good. You know. Sorry, I only left the white meat. I like dark meat. You don't do that. That's not a way that you show that you're interested in someone and that you love someone. You know that person is interested in you when they invest financially in you, when they invest time in your relationship. You know, when you first started out dating and you spent so much time trying to 
figure out where you're going to go for that date and the timeliness and what you're going to do and all this investment you make into the time and, and the amount of money you spend to try to woo this person, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so those of you married, like, past two years, you got to do that again. Talk to Andrew. He's right in the game, like, probably still doing it. So, <laughs> awesome. So they do everything possible to give their best, their best hours. They don't give them the leftovers from work. Right? You, you, you figure it out. You figure out how to put that phone call in during a break or something. Like, you know, hey, I love you. Uh, just thinking about you. And even if it's just those little things, you, you do those things. You, you prioritize your time. You prioritize your resources. You, you send those flowers. You send that gift. You, you do stuff. Verse 34, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And so here we see all the people contributing to the wood offering where people could tangibly see their offering at work because, you know, a kid that was gathering that wood with their parents they could go and they can see where they dropped that wood off and then they can share in the knowledge that, hey, you know that wood that we brought the other day? It's burning. It's part of this. That very wood that we brought for the offering is at work. And so everyone could experience firsthand their part in contributing to that worship community. And this was their spiritual family. So, hey, look at what's happening. Look at what's happening here. And the same thing is happening at our church where people are watching. Where we bring up someone like Alex to show this is where our offerings go. Every month we bring in a missionary to show this is where our offerings go. This is what you guys can contribute. This is a tangible way to see, like, it's not just all about us, where we could see tangibly our offering at work. These generations, these younger generations coming behind us, they're watching us. They're watching what we're doing with our money. They're watching what we're doing with our time. And they'll know that they're part of a worship community by how regularly we participate in corporate worship with one another and they'll know that they're part of this spiritual family by where our resources are invested and we're showing them where we're investing it. They're watching. They're looking at this stuff. I mean, it was kind of weird. My baby, not really a baby anymore, she's a toddler, just turned two and I was worshiping in the back there and you know, I'm lifting up my hands and my eyes are closed and I open my eyes and she's lifting up her hands. She has no idea what she's doing. She's just, you know, cool, my dad's doing it, all right, cool, you know. But they're watching, and they're copying, they're mimicking. 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. When the Israelites harvested fruit, they harvested a lot of fruit. It wasn't like they picked one peach, you know, oh, great, that's it. It's a lot, the whole crop, right? But the first fruits, what they got first, that was given to God. They were to be given to the temple. Why is this? Why is this? It was the common, it was the known place for the corporate worship of God. Everyone knew this. It was a place known for the corporate love of God. They all knew this. To give to God our first fruits as an acknowledgement that God gave it all to us in the first place. 
He gave us life. He gave us the food that sustains us. He gave us everything needed for life, and it was a way to recognize it's not ours. We know you gave this to us. We know this. It's to give back to the church so that the church can use it as the collective resources to minister to the needs of the larger community. And this idea of first fruits also pertain to livestock and children. Don't ask me why they're in the same sentence, but that's the way it is. 36, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. Here's something to keep in mind. If our faith in Jesus costs us nothing, how much is it worth? If our faith in Jesus costs us nothing, is it worth anything? See, they dedicated their firsts. Before they received anything, God received it. On September 6th, we're going to have a baby dedication. Someone in our church family asked if they can dedicate their child. And so I want to invite any of you who want to participate in dedicating your child to the Lord. We invite you to celebrate this with us. Just get in contact with Stefan or myself and we can arrange this for you. And so this is not to say that only your firstborn gets dedicated. Like after the second, third, fourth, yeah, we only need the first. You can give more. You can give all you want. But that first one, that first one tends to be the hardest. The first of anything tends to be the hardest, right? I mean, why is that? Because you don't have another. Ask your child to give away their ice cream cone when they only have one. <laughs> or their lollipop or their bubble gum, or their whatever. Ask them to give whatever they have. They don't have it. But if you give them a dozen, oh, yeah. yeah. Here's another. Here's another. Yeah, give it all the way. It's fine. Giving your first one, that's tough. But all your children are the Lord's. Everything we have is His, isn't it? When we die, none of the stuff that we have accumulated goes with us. Verses 37 through 39 and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns when we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So they committed their first fruits to the house of their God and also the chambers of the storehouses to the house of the God. So we see in verses 34 through 39 that it wasn't simply just a provision of the worship service, but also the ongoing maintenance of the worship services for the future. And so we enter into the very comfortable discussion of the tithe. Now, some believe that the tithe is just a formula. You know, God gets 10%, we get 90%, that's it. So I make 100 bucks, I give 10 bucks to God, and I keep 90 bucks. 
Rather than looking at the tithe as a formula, let's look at it as a principle. Because we know God is the provider of all that we need, don't we? Everything we own is His, so isn't it all His? It's all His. 100% of it. And in the Old Testament, we're introduced to this concept, this principle of the tithe, where the first 10% of that 100% is given to God, to His people, and, and the work of His people. What we find in the Old Testament is that the tithe actually came out to much more than a mere 10%. Because if we're thinking about it, you take one day a week off, you take a year out of every seven off, these guys, they were giving a third of a shekel. It's a lot more than what this tithe is supposed to represent. So when the people rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time, that was a lot more than 10% because they just stopped working in the field and started working on the wall. They gave everything. They gave all that they could. A tenth of what we have given to God is just an absolute no-brainer when we enter into the New Testament. I mean, that's just a starting point. It's not even a cap. So for some of you, like, oh, you know, I've already given my 10%. I, I can't do the 10.1. I mean, that's just not biblical. You know, it's a tithe. Lord have mercy. You know, like, it's not a cap on how much you can give. The 10% is given just as a starting point, but it's not a limit as to how much we can give. It's all His. And if we don't realize that, maybe that is why some are even struggling to give 10%. Because you don't realize it's all His. Have we taken this guiding principle of the tithe seriously? I think some of you have. I really don't know because I don't look at our tithe records. I don't know how much any of you give. I purposely stay away from that. I don't do that. I let other people in our staff handle those things. But I can do the math. I can do the math of how many people we have at the church, the average pay of the Bay Area, and do the math. And some of you are struggling with this. Others of you, I'm sure you're just generous. You're beyond this. And so that's great. The tithing is a great place to start. The temple was the center of God's people gathering for his spiritual purposes and for his spiritual work. And today this happens in his church, in his people. And as we gather in our respective locales, we gather as a local church, as a corporate body to worship, to love God, and to show love to our community. Now, there are some people who believe that the tithe is for them to distribute however they like. And I've met many of them here at our church where, you know what, I believe in these missionaries here, and I believe in these parachurches here, and I believe in supporting this philanthropic cause and doing this disaster relief and all this kind of stuff. And then maybe if there's some left over, I'll decide whether to give it to the local church or not. I'm going to burst your bubble. That's not biblical. Where in the Bible do you see evidence of that? Where do you see that? Where are you getting that? The local church has always been the center of spirituality for God's people gathering and for his purposes and for his work. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't support missionaries and parachurches and other ministries or causes or things like that. But if you're neglecting the local church, you're neglecting a huge part of where 
Christians have always given, always, to the local church. The local church is God's instrument to reaching the world. You look up church in your concordance, and it's going to pop up 73 verses. Talk about the church. Type in parachurch. It's not there. It's not there. And even when we look at missionaries like Paul, his work is to establish churches. And giving for a cause or other ministry, it was through the local church. The church gave to those things. Again, not saying that we shouldn't support parachurch ministries or or missionaries or causes or giving towards other worthy causes. It's just all those gifts of generosity are to be in addition to giving to the local church. And it's not the other way around where your leftovers are given to the local church. Now, some of you may have different convictions about this. Some of you may have different beliefs about this. What I want to challenge you is to really look through the Bible to back up your thoughts. Not because it's your feeling. Because I would argue that part of it, I would push back a little bit, that part of it is just your pride. Wanting to dictate where your money goes. Wanting to dictate where you believe it supports this or supports that. That's not how it's been throughout church history. Throughout all of church history, this is not the case. Now, regeneration as a church, we hold the view that the focus of giving to the work of the gospel is through the local church. That giving to a parachurch or missionaries or ministries, causes whatever, that's fine, but not at the neglect of the local church. Wherever your money goes, it shows you where your heart is. And I would challenge you to look through those things as to why is it that your money is not going to the local church because there may be some things under that. Whether that is pride or you're really holding on to something that it's not yours anyway and you're still holding on to it like it's yours. That there's something deeper there because money accurately, honestly reveals where your heart is. It does not lie. Now, what is the latter part of Nehemiah 10 getting across to us? That the Israelites' commitment to God from their heart to invest towards His work and His purpose, this redirects our life. It redirects our time. It redirects our families. It redirects our finances. And to get a New Testament flavor of this, let's turn to 1 Timothy 6, verses 9-10. through But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some may have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This was me. This is what I have to fight against all the time. This is my struggle. And now you notice that verses 9 through 10 addresses those who desire to be rich this isn't addressing the rich this is for those who want to be rich they're not rich these are verses for those who want to be rich now that doesn't mean that the rich are off the hook because they're addressed in verses 17 through 19 let's skip down there as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So whether you are rich or you're not, we have these instructions from God. Where is your heart this morning? If you're not sure, break out your checkbook, your bank statements, your receipts, your credit card statements, because that will tell you. It'll tell you loud and clear where your heart is. See, the Israelites made a covenant with God and it was going to impact their finances because that recommitment to God was going to realign their families, their finances, and their time towards the purpose and the work of God. Where is your heart this morning regarding those three things? Your family, your time, your finances. And how are you investing all three of those really important things into the purpose and the work of God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that the scriptures so impact us as they did the people during Nehemiah's time. That is, touches us in such a powerful way that it's beyond just conviction that we feel this morning and it's beyond just some knowledge that we've accumulated this morning, Lord, but that it's actual transformation that we move forward with, that there's actual change that happens in our life because the word of God has been presented to us. So Lord, would you bless your church to go about your purposes and your work in Jesus' name, amen.